Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. Hey everyone, welcome back to Lo-Fi Lectionary Luke 5. We made it! I've beat it through the first month! Yay! Ah, oh, this is going to be great. Luke 5. Oh, the story turns here. We're going to dig into it. It's going to be great, but first I only have one thing to say. I'm on my feet. I'm on the floor. I'm good to go. All I need is just to hear a song that I know. I want to always feel like part of this is mine. I want to fall in love tonight. So let's get digging in. Um, real quick before we dig into the new text, here is Luke 1 through 4 in two minutes. Let's see if I can make it. Oh, actually, you know what? I'm going to go ahead I'm, just to make sure I do it in two minutes. I am going to start a timer. On your mark. Get set. So at the beginning of the story, there's two people named Elizabeth and Zechariah, and they're policy folks, but they have no baby, which is really sad. They're righteous, but they're experiencing the curse, But they, so they are Batman. Um, then an angel shows up and says, you're going to have a special baby, and he's going to prepare people to look, look upon the Lord, and it starts off the themes of, of God wanting to show favor on people and lifting up the low. Then there's a lady named Mary. An angel comes to her, too, and says, don't be afraid. You've found favor with God. The Lord is with you. Three themes that'll be key through the rest of the book. She's going to have a baby who's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be on the throne of David, and in some of his kingdom, there will be no end, and he will be called the Son of God. Then Mary sings an awesome song about how God's brought down the powerful and lifted up the lowly, filled the hungry, and set the rich away empty. Again, hammering home the themes of favor, high and low, and societal change being part of God's mission in the world. Then uh, there's a birth. Jesus is born, and there's an emperor throwing his weight around by making people go back to their homes and registry, but Jesus isn't throwing his weight around. He's a very humble, uh, and, he, and he's the real king. He's born in a manger, and he's served by shepherds, and he's witnessed by weirdos, and his family can only afford the poor people's offering at the temple, so it's a very different kind of king. Then Jesus is a child, and he amazes everybody with his knowledge, and he grows in favor and wisdom of others. Then there's John the Baptist, and he shows up, and he says, hey, the Messiah's coming. Get ready, you brood of vipers. God is sending someone with an axe, and he's going to toss the chaff into unquenchable unquenchable fire so you better repent and change your ways and the way that people are supposed to repent interestingly in the book of Luke is people are supposed to be generous and give and be just and fair with each other then uh, Jesus gets baptized and when he gets baptized the spirit descends on him and a voice from heaven comes down and says this is my son the beloved in whom I'm well pleased and Jesus is tempted by the temple to see if he's really the son of God and if he's going to use his power for his own gain or for others and he wins then Jesus gives his very first sermon where he says his big thesis and he says the spirit of the Lord is upon me to give good news to the poor to proclaim lease of captives recovery set to the blind set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the lord's favor where all the debts are forgiven so this is what jesus is going to be all about and some people love it but some people don't like it because jesus says some outsiders are going to get it and i'm running out of time and that's the end of two minutes so that's kind of it so far let's see where it goes from here all right so let's go ahead and start digging into luke chapter five this is going to be great Here we go. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. So that's our little introductory phrase to the next section of the book. Um, basically, it's Jesus back. He's kind of in his hometown county area, um, Gennesaret, which is also sometimes called Galilee. So you'll, sometimes you'll see Lake or Sea of Galilee. Sometimes you'll see it as Gennesaret. Um, this kind of area was a little bit separate and kind of secluded from the big city, from Jerusalem, because um, there was a, uh, an area, kind of a county called Samaria that was kind of in between them. Um, so uh, so that's kind of interesting. Jesus is kind of from the outskirts, from the sticks. Um 
and he starts teaching from a boat. Um, so this is just good physics. Um, it's an old school ancient microphone. Sound waves would uh, control and carry better um, as they traveled over water. So when there's a big crowd shows up, he says, hey, put me out in the water a little bit so that way everyone can hear me. And let's see what he does. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled the partners in their other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that both of them began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. So were also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. So that's the first little uh, little vignette that we get, and uh, we don't hear Jesus' teaching. We just get the story and the action. So we're going to get a block of teaching coming up in Luke soon, um, but not right here. Luke is very just focused on the action. He wants to kind of show us what Jesus is doing. Um, and uh, already, if you didn't catch it yet, through this little vignette, we start to get lots of down and up imagery. The they go the they put out into the deep water and let down the nets. They pull the nets up um, with lots of fish. The boats start sinking down. Um, Peter stands up and then he falls down at Jesus's feet. And then uh, Jesus invites him to go along. So they stand up and follow him. So down, up, down, up, down, up. Um, and that's going to be a, a key literal kind of thing all the way through Luke. And it starts off really heavy right here in the story. So we do get this little scene with Simon Peter, sometimes called Simon, sometimes called Peter. Um, uh, and, and sometimes called Simon and Peter. <laughs> there we go. Um, so don't get him confused. Um, he is a fisherman, which a fisherman in the ancient world in Jesus's area was actually a better than average job. And the fact that they aren't uh, fishermen alone, but that they work in a team means that their business is doing pretty well. I mean, he's not like a king or a prince or anything like that, but he he's, he's a well-to-do fisherman. Um, and he's doing well as a business, so they have multiple boats, and they would have nets that use multiple boats, which means they could catch more fish. So he's not throwing out one net to catch it from one boat. They have one um, big net that they kind of use to surround an area of the sea and then pull them in uh, together um, to catch a lot of fish. And sure enough, they catch so many fish that they need all those boats. Um, they've worked all night because um, fishing would be better at night, um, but they haven't caught anything. So it's the daytime and Jesus isn't an authority on fishing. He's a Bible teacher. Um, he's a rabbi. He's a master. Um, but Jesus shows some trust in him by saying, you know what? Fine. If, if, if that's what you say, then we'll give it one more shot. Um, and uh, the boats and the nets get full. And so this is again, echoing the theme that we get from Mary's song at the very beginning earlier in Luke, where Mary says the poor he has filled and filled that word in, in, uh, in, in their language is a, is a term fill of, uh, itself of messianic implications, like to be filled, like the Messiah was going to come in and make sure people were filled. So when Mary uses it, she's talking of the Messiah and here the boats and the nets are full. And, uh, so Peter's response is he gets down. Um, you know, he says he's a sinful man. He's very humble and Jesus lifts him up. 
Interesting. So uh, also we get here again, people are amazed. They're thalmazoed in the Greek um, when Jesus does something. And amazement, that wonder is always um, the sign of a good response to what Jesus is doing. So people are amazed. Um, Peter calls him Lord, which in the the Greek is the word Kyrie, um, which could be used for Lord. And it's kind of a tricky term because um, it could be used in some Greek versions of the Old Testament to talk about God. Like uh, they would use the word Adonai, I think in the Hebrew, um, or, or, or Yahweh um, uh, in the Hebrew. But uh, when it gets translated to Greek, sometimes they use the word Kyrie. But Kyrie is also a word kind of thrown around for just anyone who you want to be polite to, like the word sir. Um, you know, when people say sir or sire, you know, it could be a king or it could be the guy who runs the store that you want to buy something from. Uh, it could be a word for just like master, teacher or something like that. So you got to be careful kind of not to take Luke's use of that term too much either way. Like Luke could be, be putting the word Kyrie in there as being like, yes, these people identified Jesus as being, you know, divine, like the son of God. Or it could be Luke being like, no, these people were really polite. They recognized him as a teacher or a master. It's kind of tricky. You can't take it too far. Um, if anything, it at least shows that Jesus at this point had some esteem in the community enough that Peter was like, oh, I need to call him Kyrie. Like he's like recognized as being like a teacher, a master in uh, in their town. So at least we have that. Um, and Luke also uh, has Jesus uttering the phrase, do not be afraid. This is the fourth time that this phrase has appeared in Luke. Jesus is here repeating the words of the angel when the angel comes to people and invites Mary or Elizabeth, people like that, to be a part of God's mission. Here, Jesus is now saying it to Simon in his invitation. From now on, you'll be catching people, do not be afraid. It's an invitational phrase. Really interesting. Um, and uh, we're always kind of amazed that that uh, Peter and James and John um, leave everything. They, 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 you know, literally drop the nets and go follow Jesus. Um, there's still kind of an amazing thing to it because it, it, it seems like their business was doing well and they're willing to leave it. At the same time, we keep into, into mind that Jesus was recognized as a rabbi and that being a disciple of a rabbi, like being a follower, a student, was like the greatest honor you could get. Um, to, to be a disciple of a rabbi meant that you would have had to already pass several levels of school where they had tests and cuts along the way because they only took the best of the best of the best to be their disciples. So um, since uh, Peter and James and John are, are not disciples of a rabbi, since they're out fishing means that somewhere along the line, if they were in school, they got cut. And here is Jesus, a rabbi, coming and saying, no, come and be my disciples. So um, that would have also been, um, you know, a great honor, a great opportunity, maybe something they were really excited about. Um, but they also are willing to leave a very, possibly a very comfortable life to go and to, uh, to go catch people. We'll kind of have to read the rest of the book of Luke to see exactly what Jesus means by that. But that's the first little vignette. Let's go ahead and continue reading on in the text. Excuse me. Once when he was in one of the cities, there was a man covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you choose, you can, uh, you can make me clean. Then Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, and said, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he ordered him to tell no one. Go, Jesus said, and show yourself to the priest, and as Moses commanded, make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them. But now more than ever, the word about Jesus spread abroad, and many crowds would gather to hear him and be cured of their diseases. But he would withdraw to deserted places and pray. So again, uh, we hear that Jesus is traveling around and teaching, but we don't get the teaching yet. We just get the action. 
interesting storytelling choice. Um, and here Jesus has a little interaction. Uh, he just had an interaction with Peter. Now he's having interaction with a leper. And a leper at the time would have been a social uh, and physical outcast from the community. It was kind of looked upon as him as his job of being a sick person to avoid other people so he doesn't contaminate them. So the leper, just by coming up to Jesus, is showing um, some courage, some trust, um, uh, because he's supposed to be doing his job of keeping away from others. And here he is coming into town, coming close to Jesus, uh, asking for help. Now, there were some hot springs in Galilee that people would come and gather around because um, they were thought to have some sort of healing properties to bring back your health in the same way that people go to spas and stuff today. Um, so Galilee could be a place where a lot of people who were sick or desperate kind of gathered to go get help. Um, and here we have this leper coming in uh, to meet Jesus to get help. And again, we have the imagery of down and up. So uh, when the leper comes and sees Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground um, and asks for help. And then Jesus touches him and tells him to go get up and go sell yourself to a priest. So down, up, down, up. Interesting. It's a storytelling device for Luke um, that we're going to hammer on a lot over the rest of the chapter. Um, again, this man also addresses Jesus as Kyrie, as Lord. Um, and there's the risk of contamination. Like it's against the law to touch someone with leprosy because as a community, they had laws about that because they didn't want diseases to spread. Um, but Jesus here um, doesn't just heal him with words like he does sometimes with some people. He reaches out and it says, deliberate in the text, that Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Um, so Jesus is kind of willing to to bend or to break uh, either the law or at least the social barriers that their community has in place to keep people safe. He's not afraid of getting contaminated. He's here to heal the person. Um, even in the, the way the, the guy phrases it, if you choose, you can make me clean. Jesus, I choose. I do choose. Like, that's what I'm here. That's what I want to do. Interesting. Um, and then the other interesting thing is he tells the guy to tell no one, which I always thought was kind of strange. Um... But we get a clue as to maybe why Jesus would do that, because now crowds, big kind of unruly maybe crowds are gathering um, wherever Jesus goes. And Jesus has to kind of constantly withdraw away from the crowds to deserted places. So again, we've had the imagery of up and down, up and down, rising and lowering. But we've also continued to have the image of, of people moving toward and away, toward and away. And Jesus kind of withdraws from people as much as he kind of goes into towns to see them, to touch them. He has to kind of go and draw away and withdraw to be alone. Kind of interesting. So there's some kind of tension in the text there of Jesus uh, wanting to be with the crowds, wanting to help people, but also having to draw away from them at certain times. So it's just kind of interesting, interesting guy, this Jesus. Let's continue on in the story. One day while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting nearby. They had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. Just then some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a bed. They were trying to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, who is this and who is, for, who, is speak, who is this who is speaking blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their questionings, he answered them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, stand up and walk. 
But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the one who is paralyzed, I say to you, stand up and take your bed and go to your home. Immediately he stood up before them, took what he had been lying on, and went to his home, glorifying God. Amazement seized all of them, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen strange things today. <laughs> I love that. I don't know why. That's, we've seen some strange things today. <laughs> so um, next vignette, again, he's teaching and we get no teaching, just the action. Luke wants action, action, action right now. Um, and we get new characters. We get the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and also the scribes um, introduced into this section. Um, and they've come from every village. So the crowd has been following Jesus, but now the Pharisees and the teachers and the scribes are, 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 are coming out to, to see what the commotion's about. Um, and it seems like they start, uh, these are the people that are going to start, um, opposing Jesus, some of them in some ways. And so, um, as the opposition is increasing, as the crowd increases, this gives us another possible clue into why maybe Jesus didn't want word about what he's doing to spread too quickly. Um, cause maybe he's like, you know what? I want to do this for a while without drawing the wrong kind of attention. And now he's getting the wrong kind of attention. Um, so we get them described as Pharisees. We get people described as teachers of the law and we get people described as scribes. Now scribes or teachers of the law were, um, people who were authorized like by their town, by their village, um, who were, uh, who were incredibly knowledgeable about the Old Testament laws and the scriptures, um, because those weren't the Old Testament to them. That was active. That was like their law. This is how we live. So they need, um, experts. And so they were really well versed in all the scriptures. Um, they were authorized by their village. They would teach kids. Um, so they were like the school teachers and they would also execute legal documents for the community. So those are the scribes and the teachers of the law. Sometimes those two titles for them are thrown around, um, interchangeably. Um, then we also get people described as Pharisees. Pharisees were, um, like a local religious group. Um, they were, uh, unique, to, uh, to, um, to Israel. Um, they were kind of a sect within the Hebrew religion. Um, but they weren't a sect in the temple, like in Jerusalem, they were a sect like in every town. Um, so they were kind of like local pastors, like if local pastors had only one denomination, um, and they were in all the towns together. Um, so, um, so there are these like local religious leaders and their big thing was they sought to interpret and talk about and discuss, um, not just the law, but the tradition of teaching about the law. Um, in a way as to figure out how they and how everyday people should be living under this law. So from their point of view, they're like, you know what? Like all these laws in, in, you know, that we have in our scriptures, they're not just for the priests in the temple or for, um, for particular figures. They're for everybody. So how do we figure out how to teach people how to follow these laws and live like God wants them to live? Um, every day in everyday situations. So they were really religiously devoted um, because they saw um, like a lot of the laws about purity and a lot of laws about being clean and a lot of laws about what's sacred and what's not um, as not pertaining just to life in the temple for priests and for worship. They saw it as being something that everyone every day needs to figure out how to carry out these laws. Um, at the same time, though, they were pretty politically moderate. Like um, we don't really get them shown as being like zealous figures who are out to kind of overthrow Rome. Now, their laws about purity and about customs like that often put them in tensions with foreign cultures. But um, they're not like the ones who are like, we need to go and uh, get all these foreigners out. <laughs> you know, um, they're just kind of like, eh, we just don't associate with them. 
um, in, in the same way that you'll in other um, books uh, and other gospels and maybe even later on in Luke we're going to get people described as zealots who were like no we need to go kill these people and get them out <laughs> stuff like that we need to overthrow the government um, the Pharisees weren't really associated so much with the government as just being like people in local villages who are trying to teach people what they thought was the right way to live um, so um, but in their debates and discussions about the laws and how to live it out um, they actually kind of expand the laws in a lot of ways that sometimes um, add to them and add new customs or add ways of like, okay, how do we best live this? Well, we need to make sure that it's very clear. And when you have to be clear about every little thing, you end up expanding it and kind of adding to the law. Um, but they wanted to figure, help figure out that out for people because they wanted everyone to be able to show devotion to their God. So um, theologically, interestingly enough, the Pharisees are often characterized as being, being Jesus's biggest enemies. But theologically, Jesus is actually um, closest to them as a group than he is to almost any other group that we'll see Jesus have to interact with in the Bible. So it's almost as if um, the 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 tense arguments that Jesus gets in with Pharisees are almost more of a result of we're the closest together, but the few things that we argue about um, then get highlighted even deeper and become bigger deals than maybe they would otherwise normally be. Um, because we're so close, but Jesus is kind of off from their point of view on a couple big things. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Um, to carry on, um, we, we get this healing story of this paralyzed man. And again, we see the imagery of, of, of down, up, down, up. So he's paralyzed man. He has to live on a bed. So he's permanently on the ground. Um, so he's always down, but he has friends who are up. So his friends carry him and his mat um, to the crowd. They can't get in. So they go up to the top of the house to lower him down to the inside of the house, where then Jesus heals him and tells him to stand up. So down, up, down, up, down, up, all over the place. Um, just kind of interesting uh, to, to point out that that's how Luke is telling the story. Um, and everyone kind of seems to do well with Jesus. Lots of people are amazed. Lots of people are excited. But the, but the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the scribes are going to start to be the people who don't do well, um, as they interact with Jesus. And we're going to start trying to highlight why they maybe don't click with Jesus. Um, so, and in this story, it's not such a big deal. They just kind of start to question, like, who is this guy? What's his identity? What's his role? They've come to check him out and they have some questions about his behavior, um, about the things he says. Um, you know, Jesus says, you know, your sins are forgiven. They're like, well, who does this guy think he is? Like only God can forgive sins. Um, they want to know, they raise the question. Um, and they, they, they're, they, they start to accuse him of blasphemy. Blasphemy is basically um, either dishonoring God in a way um, that's very clear um, or speaking God's name. You weren't allowed to say God's name. Um, that would be blasphemy because that would be dishonoring God or pretending to speak for God when you don't. Um, that could be considered blasphemy. And so other people can talk about and declare the forgiveness of sins. But when you're doing so, you're, you're, you're at least pretending, if not saying that, hey, I'm speaking for God, only God can forgive sins. So they kind of raise that as a question. Jesus in his response, well, what's easier for me to do? Just say that his sins are forgiven and pretend to speak for God or actually use words to heal this person. Um, so, uh, it's easier to just say, yeah, your sins are forgiven than to say like, okay, I'm going to put my, my money where my mouth is and say that this person is healed, that God is with me in a way that you're all going to be able to tell whether or not God's with me, whether or not this person's going to be able to stand up. And sure enough, the guy stands up, 
um, and goes home glorifying God. So boom, proof of who he is. Um, and at that point, everyone's amazed. And that might include these, these Pharisees and scribes and teachers That's at this point. It says everyone. Um, so amazement seized all of them, and they all glorified God and were filled with awe. So at this moment, you know, tension is released. Like, yay, God is good. Everyone's happy about it. Um, so that's the first little, that's the next little scene. Let's go on in the text. After this, he went out, Jesus went out, and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and left everything and followed him. So uh, just two sentences, but real quick. Um, Levi is a tax collector. Now, being a tax collector in Israel meant that you were um, an Israelite, a Hebrew person, but um, whose job was to work to collect taxes, not for uh, the Israelite government, but for the Roman government. Um, the Roman government was like the evil occupying empire. Um, so if you were a Hebrew person who was collecting taxes for the evil empire, people did not like you. Um, you were seen as being treasonous, as being a co-conspirator with Rome, as being a collaborator. Um, so people were not happy with what you were doing. Plus you're a tax person, which no one likes. Plus to make income as a tax collector, it meant that you, um, charged whatever you want on top of people's regular taxes to take as your share, as your income. And Rome just authorized you to do that. So um, people often saw that as being like, you're stealing, like you're stealing from me. You could charge whatever you want. Tax collectors then were often very wealthy because they could just take whatever they wanted from people and demand that. Um, so it's to the point where not only um, were they not liked, but tax collectors may have been excluded from a religious um, life within their community kind of like the leper was in the story a couple um, scenes ago. So uh, tax collectors, not liked, but Levi is a tax collector. And um, Jesus walks up and invites him, the co-conspirator, the, tr the, the traitor, um, to be his follower. Um, and so this uh, would have been a great honor, again, to be a disciple of a rabbi. And But um, Levi does have to make the choice, do I leave my very lucrative career to go and follow a rabbi instead? Jesus accepts on the spot. It says he leaves everything and he follows him. So just like Peter and the other fishermen, leaves everything, goes and follows Jesus, becomes a disciple. Um, and so we have this interesting second story of people who see their potentially very wealthy position, um, which would have been great as having less value than they could have following Jesus. So we see people who decide that what Jesus is up to is more valuable than whatever they're doing. Um, and we're going to see Jesus continue to encounter some people who make that same decision and some people who do not value what Jesus is doing enough to change what they're doing and will start to oppose him. So kind of interesting. Um, and again, once more, down up imagery, Levi sitting at the tax booth. Jesus says, follow me. He gets up and he follows him. So Luke is all about down and up imagery. And let's track it as we continue to go on. Let's go on to the next scene. Then Levi gave a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Um... 
So let's take a break here. Uh, Levi returns the honor that Jesus gave him. Jesus gives him the honor of being a disciple. Levi returns the honor by throwing a banquet. This was actually just a a common practice. If someone honored you greatly and you had the means to do so, you threw a party at your house and you invite um, all of your colleagues or subordinates. Um, And here we see Levi doing just that. There's a large crowd of tax collectors and others, and they're all sitting at the table eating with him. Now, when you're eating people, um, the term that we throw around for that in their culture is called table fellowship. So if you're literally sitting at a table with other people and eating, that was a very intimate act. Um, And if you invite people to come to your table, and then if you actually follow through on eating with them, you were declaring intimacy between you and another person. You were were sharing um, your sense of social identity with them and stuff like that. So you wouldn't accept table fellowship with a person that you didn't think was all right. And we see that um, pulled up very... uh, uh, clearly here because the tech, the, I'm sorry, the Pharisees and the scribes go to the disciples and complain, like, why are you eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? That's not okay. Um, why is Jesus, if he's supposed to be a good rabbi, associating himself with these people? Um, and so they've moved from just questioning Jesus to now outright complaining. Um, and it's funny to me in the story is that they don't go and complain to Jesus. They go to Jesus's boys. Like they go to Jesus' disciples. Um, and they're like, ugh, like, why is your teacher eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? I, I mean, aren't, isn't it the way people are? Like they're never direct with you. <laughs> They'll always go to your friends. Um, so the Pharisees and the scribes, their complaint, why does he eat with them? You know, it's one thing for Jesus to be teaching anyone, you know, and trying to call them to repentance, but it's another thing for Jesus to be befriending them. And, uh, and you know, social identity is an incredibly powerful thing. And here Jesus is identifying with um, collaborators, traitors, sinners, people that are generally suspicious among the community. And he's showing intimacy and favor with them. It's almost like Jesus is here to show favor for folks. Um, so, uh, so yeah, and we see that kind of continuing as a theme all throughout um, Luke of people who may be kind of under suspicion, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are barren and have no children, Mary, who's, you know, an unwed uh, mother, you know, the leper and Levi and the tax collectors. It's continuing to go around that, G- that God seems very interested in meeting with and sitting down of identifying with and using people who um, are kind of suspicious characters within their community, which is really fascinating and fun to me. Let's go ahead and continue on in the story. Then they, the, the Pharisees and scribes, said to Jesus, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray, but your disciples eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, you cannot make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a garment, from a new garment, and sews it onto an old garment. Otherwise, the new will be torn, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new wine, but says, the old is good. (laughs) It's good. Um... So yeah, so Jesus uh, starts to defend himself. Uh, He overhears their complaining 
um, they start to bring charges to him. You know, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees. <laughs> I love that little part. Um, so they talk about fasting and praying. And they're like, your disciples don't fast and pray. Your disciples eat and drink. Um, fasting, I think we talked about it um, a little bit before. It was, it was part of a dedication to prayer. The Pharisees fasted twice a week. Um, you know, so them and their disciples, they're fasting all the time. It was a way to show penitence, a way to show repentance, a way to just devote yourself to God. Um, rabbis and prospective rabbis would be expected to be fasting. Um, and Jesus just brought up repentance. You know, um, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So they're like, hey, on the topic of repentance, you guys aren't repenting right. <laughs> you know, you guys don't fast. Um and uh, so that's the charge that they bring to him. Jesus's response is, you know, you can't make wedding guests fast with the bridegroom, do you? Um, back then, um, wedding f- weddings were a big festival. If you went to a wedding, it was like a week-long event um, where all of your family and friends came out and you threw a big party for this new couple that was starting a new life together. Um, and during that time, you ate and you drank um, and you drank wine. <laughs> um, you know, it wasn't water. Um, and you were not allowed to mourn And you are not allowed to do heavy labor during the wedding festival. Um, So Jesus is like, look, like, like this isn't the time. Like my, you know, it's, it's, it's such not the right time to fast and to pray like that, that uh, they're not allowed to. This, this is like a wedding. And my rule is, is that they're not allowed to, to fast and to, and to mourn, to do heavy work. They're just supposed to enjoy being with me right now. And he uses this little imagery of the wine and the patches, you know, uh, uh, a, a new a new piece of cloth, you know, would have to, to age and to shrink, you know, and stuff like that in the laundry. So you wouldn't sew a new patch on without, you know, onto an old garment. Otherwise, it's going to tear when it shrinks, you know, or it's going to look off because it's not going to match the old, you know, stuff like that. Uh, or, or with wine, if you put new wine into old wineskins, the wineskins, the old ones would have already stretched through the fermentation process. And so if you put new wine in there again, if you tried to use them again, they would just burst and make a big mess. Um, so he says, but the old is good. So the new wine isn't fermented yet. You know, the new wine won't taste good if you're an old wine drinker, you know, I don't know a lot about wine, but I lived in Napa for a while. Um, and I met a lot of people who are all about wine and, and it seems to be a kind of general rule that, you know, wine from a certain year, you know, that's kind of old and is, you know, vintage, you know, is, is the good stuff, you know, and you wouldn't want to drink it until it's fermented yet. So new wine, you know, Jesus, you know, like anyone who, 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 who drinks old wine wouldn't desire new wine, but says the old is good. You know what I mean? He's like, so you guys have had the old wine for a while and it's good and it's fine, you know, but we, we got to have new wine. You know, if you've already got the old wine to drink, you're not going to like the new stuff. So I don't expect you to like it. And, and, uh, drawing back from the imagery he's already used of, um, you know, I, I'm here to work with sick people, not the healthy people. So, you know, sick, healthy, old, new is the imagery Jesus uses. And um, maybe that's why um, all the people that are doing well with Jesus are the people who kind of are sick or are the people who aren't getting the goodness of old wine to drink. Like they're not the ones prospering off the way that things go. You know, it's, it's the fishermen, it's the lepers, it's the paralyzed folks, it's the tax collectors and the sinners, you know, um, they, they need wine too. And so Jesus is here to give them wine. And unfortunately that makes the old wine drinkers a little surly. Um, you know, um, and Jesus isn't really good going after, you know, the Pharisees. He's like, you know, you, you guys have your wine, you're healthy. Um, but, but don't keep it from these people. Let me, let me share it with them. Jesus is here to bring God's favor to the folks who haven't been getting it yet. Um, and that's just what he's up to. So that's the last piece of text for this section. So let's go ahead and ask our lo-fi questions. So first question, uh, in Luke 5, 
Um, what is God like? Um, I, I would love to hear what, what you think God is like in, in Luke 5, but as I read it, this is what it looks like to me. Um, Jesus, just everywhere he goes, is all about blessing and healing and bringing favor. And if Luke is telling a story where he's like, yeah, this, this, is, this is God, this is the Son of God. If you want to see what God looks like, look at Jesus. Everywhere he goes, he's just trying to, to bring favor and goodness, you know. Um, he does ask people to, to give some things away, to leave some things behind, some things that are good. Um, and he often asks people to leave behind the things that they might actually see as the evidence that God has already brought them favor. If they've got a good job, if they've got, you know, decent money, if they're able to feed their families and, and live comfortably, you might look around at that and say, oh yeah, God is good. He's been good to me. But here Jesus comes and brings goodness and favor and is like, oh, you need to leave those things behind if you want to go and continue on to experience more goodness, more favor. Come and join me. Let's go fish for people, you know? Um, so that's kind of interesting. Um, and as he's going around and trying to be good and just bringing goodness and favor on people and, and health and, and wholeness, um, Jesus is showing that he has like a special interest and connecting with and bringing good things to people who are like the vulnerable, needy people. Um, and Jesus doesn't care if they're suspicious characters, if they're traitors, if they're unclean, if they're sick. He, in fact, if they are, Jesus goes right up to them. Like we have stories of Jesus going right up to Peter, right up to Levi, right up to, you know, lepers and paralyzed people. Um, and he's not afraid of them. He's not afraid to be with them. He's not afraid to touch them. He's not afraid to have fellowship with them. He joins their parties. Like Jesus doesn't throw his own party. He goes to the party of the tax collectors and sinners. He goes to their home. He's there. He's willing to be their guests. I think that's kind of interesting. He's not drawing a line in the sand and saying, come over. He's saying, oh, you have a line in that sand. I'm going to walk right over it. It's kind of interesting. You know, and even Peter voices it for everybody in this chapter. He says, please go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And yet when Peter says that, Jesus goes, oh, you, you, I'm going to pick you. You're, you're allowed to come and follow me and be closest. Um, Jesus seeks people out. And he doesn't require them to be pure or good or all right before they're able to join him. Um, I think that's really interesting. If that's what God is like, if that's what Luke is telling us God is like, what an interesting God. Um, and then just last, I think it's fair to highlight this. Jesus, uh, God likes to party. <laughs> you know, like they're being accused of, you know, your disciples eat and drink. And eat and drink is like a code key. You know, it's like a term. It's a phrase for like, a certain kind of behavior, a certain kind of action, because everyone eats, eats and drinks, but he's like, your disciples eat and drink, you know, <laughs> they're not fasting, they're not, you know, uh, bearing the burden of their faith, they're sitting around eating and drinking, and Jesus is like, no, yeah, we're all going to eat and drink, this is great, <laughs> and, you know, Jesus is part of it too, he's there at the table with them, um, there's a certain quality about Jesus and about God in Luke 5, where God is not stingy or joyless, but he's kind of part of the party. He's there to celebrate, which I think is really interesting, um, especially for those of us who maybe grew up with a point of view of God where it seemed like God was very stingy. I don't know. We'll talk about that more in the kitchen, probably. Um, second question, what are people like? Um, well, we get this theme that I've traced very closely um, of the up and down, the rising, lowing language, 
all throughout this chapter because maybe you've seen it already, but here I'm going to go ahead and say it. Everyone on the ground does well. Like if, like if Jesus is about a movement here, if Jesus is bringing something new to people, everyone who accepts it and enjoys it and, you know, experiences, you know, some gratitude and some wonder and wants to join the movement are all people in this chapter. They're all said to be on the ground. You know, the fishermen, their, their boats sink into the sea when they pick up the fish. And then Jesus, when he, uh, Peter, when he goes to Jesus, bows down on the ground. You know, the leper, when he goes to Jesus, bows down on the ground. The paralyzed man is permanently on the ground, goes up to the top of the house, but then is lowered back down to the floor again. You know, Levi, when Jesus meets him, is sitting at his tax booth. Um, you know, the tax collectors and sinners are sitting with Jesus at the table at their party. So, um, and they all do well. They all experience how good and how loving and all the favor of God that Jesus is able to share. Um, but anyone who's not on the ground in this story doesn't do well. And everyone who's willing to either be, who is like already stuck on the ground or is willing to get on the ground to lower themselves does really well with Jesus. It's really interesting. We also get the Pharisees, the scribes, and the teachers of the law introduced in this chapter. They are never on the ground. Like Luke very deliberately like uses, uses ink and paper like press, that was really expensive at the time. Make sure to point out that when people were sitting or people bowed or people were sinking, like those aren't accidents. Like Luke is putting those in there and the Pharisees and tax collectors never get characterized as being in that position or that posture. They're kind of always standing in the background, questioning, complaining, criticizing, bringing challenges to Jesus. They're never on the ground and they don't do well with Jesus. You know, the question at first is kind of okay. It actually leads to some amazement on their part, but when they start complaining, it becomes a problem. And their complaining then turns to judgment of others. They're like, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? They're the ones kind of drawing lines in the ground and they're not willing to get down on the ground with the people who are experiencing how good Jesus is. So everyone on the ground does well. So the people who do well with God, people on the ground. Interesting. Um, and then our last question, uh, the why. Why would people carry the story around? Why uh, might it be important enough for Luke to have included it in the Bible? Why would people read it and copy it and continue to tell it over, um, you know, in their homes and campfires, you know, in their books and stuff like that today? Um, I think just that imagery of, you know, the ground is something that kind of uh, they might have kept as, part of the story because that's, they want that to become part of their character. It's kind of a reminder that maybe like Peter, sometimes we, if we want to be about what Jesus is doing and we want to be about good and beautiful things in the world, maybe we need to get on the ground, you know, and even start off with, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a sinful man, says Peter, whatever your version of that is, you know, um, people maybe were like, yeah, sometimes I need to be brought down as the language in Luke says, like he, he brings down the proud, um, to, to be a part of what's good and true and beautiful and life giving in the world. Um, 
Or maybe people have already started out on the ground. Remember, this is a post-apocalyptic gospel. Like some of these people who are reading this text are at the absolute lowest moment in the history of their people. Um, At least that's maybe how it feels. Or or that may be the reality. They've lost the temple. They've lost family members. People have been wiped out. And they're like, we're on the ground. We are the leper. We are the paralyzed person. And when Jesus encounters those people who are at their worst and have just gotten the worst things in life and who are outcasts and unloved, Jesus goes and extends a hand and touches them. And maybe they carry this story around because they're like, I'm on the ground. And I like that the story presents us with a God who's not afraid of me and who's not far from me, but is actually seeking me out and wants to pick me up and help me stand again. Um, I mean, the arguments about the law and the arguments about favor are are going to go on after Jesus. Like the people who believe in these stories and who carry the story that Luke is, is telling us are going to continue to argue with people about whether, um, you know, Jesus is doing the right things at the right time, you know, and is associating with the right people and stuff like that. And maybe they carry these stories as a way to learn from Jesus's example, um, that we need to be going after and seeking out and helping the people that are on the ground. Um, and if people have a criticism of that, um, let's remember that God is all about helping people out who are on the ground and maybe we can not listen to those criticisms. Maybe we should listen to the words of Jesus in this chapter instead. Um, you know, this story, like when you look at people getting up and, 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 and up and down, up and down, up and down, if you carry this story around, I think it's bound to make you a compassionate person. Like if you want to follow the example of Jesus, you're going to go after helping people. It's going to help create you as a person in your community that continues to tell this story, you know, every week, every year, every day that you read it. It's going to shape you into people who are compassionate. So it reminds them of what their mission is. Like maybe people kept the story around because they're like, yep, this is what we're doing. Jesus goes after and seeks other people. You know, he joins in and invites people to come along. You know, he's even willing to go hang out at the houses of, of questionable people. And that's what we should be doing all in the first place. Uh, we have to remember that early Christianity, um, I mean, they have kind of like a, a bigger church in some areas. Like, you know, what? there's a bigger church seemingly in Jerusalem, stuff like that. But early Christianity has no big, like, singular institutional center. You know, the mission of of early Christianity was not to draw people out from where they are to one particular place. It's to be sent from where you are to go out to other people. Um, And in the story, we see Jesus doing that. We don't get a lot of his teaching. It's not really about the teaching here. It's about Jesus going from town to town to find people who need to see God's favor and healing and bringing wholeness to them. So it's kind of interesting. Maybe these people kept that story around because they want to follow Jesus's example. Um, And just like Levi, maybe they're like, hey, let's throw a party so people can come among us and experience how good Jesus is, you know? Um, So that's kind of interesting. And maybe they just keep the story around just because they're like, hey, we like a story where Jesus eats and drinks. We like a story where God, you know, celebrates that life is good. And that there's a time for doing hard work and for fasting and mourning, and th- but that there's also a time to, to, uh, to celebrate. You know, um, if if the people reading and continuing on the story um, are are Hebrew, if they're part of the Jewish religion, um, you have to remember that their scriptures command more festivals than fasting. Like God has parties built into their year and holidays. 
um, more often than times when they're supposed to come together and like remember how sad they are or remember the mistakes they've made or something like that. More often, God is like, get together and have a good time and remember that life is good and that I am good. That's interesting. And here we see Jesus joining in on that. Um, so those could all be reasons that they kept that story around. I would love to hear um, what you think. Um, what do you see as God in that story? What do you see as, um, what are people like to you in this story? Do you see the same things that I see? Do you see something different? You know, and why do you think people would carry this story around? When we get to the lo-fi kitchen later this week, I'll share more of why I carry this story around um, and why it might be good for us. But uh, I'd love to hear from you. So uh, that's the end of the text and the questions in the episode. Um, let's see what happens next. Hi, everyone. That's the end of the episode, but don't go yet. Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review, subscribe, and share the podcast any way you can. Um, the more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. Uh, if you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, you can also find our podcast on Facebook and we can discuss and, and keep things going on there. Uh, just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Lectionary and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lofi at kevinlester.net. And that's lofi with no dash. So L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lofi kevin with no dash again. So at lofi kevin. Um, that's kind of it. So thank you for coming and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.